The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Oh, you're kind to draw us together as a people into a family. And to pronounce over us first, gloriously foremost, that we are a forgiven people. That we are yours, your pure and spotless bride, clothed in the righteousness of Christ himself. Thank you. That's a great thing. We say thank you. And from that, not to become that, but from that, we then turn and say, how then should we live, Lord? Point the way, call us forward into how we should live as your forgiven people, not in order to become your forgiven people. Thank you for that. There's a great freedom in that, a great freedom in that. It allows us to look at what you call us to as you shape a church, as you tell us who we are to be. It gives us a great freedom to actually look at it honestly own where we fall short, aspire to more, knowing that we stand forgiven. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So now do that, Lord. Point out the path. Call us forward. Show us what we are to be. Will you speak through your word here this morning? Will you particularly help us to know we stand forgiven? And to deal with these things carefully because it kind of gets into our hearts in some ways that could be tricky. So help me to speak carefully and all of us to hear carefully. Speak your truth, Lord. Call us forward onto the path that you mean for us as your people to walk, well aware that we are already your forgiven people, loved and owned, blessed, embraced. Thank you. Make your word clear. Teach us for your honor and for our good. Amen. If there's a way to address that, that'd be helpful. What would godliness look like? It's an important question for us who, who want to be godly, who want to walk out in that path that, that this Lord has forgiven us and then placed us on. And, and it was raised for us last week in the passage that we looked at in the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 2, but it wasn't really addressed very much and certainly wasn't answered. We saw there at the beginning of chapter 2 that Paul raised for us he, he finally now raised for us, here's what the church is supposed to be like. We've been talking about sound doctrine for a while, and now he finally gets around to here's what you are to do. And we saw then, first off, he urges us, pray for and live for others. For the sake of God's mission towards others, all sorts of others. And he said that in verse 2, when we pray for those that are in leadership positions, what we're praying for is for them to so exercise their authority that they create a world, they create a space for us that's safe and peaceful so that we can live, it says, godly and dignified in every way. Well, what's that like? What does godliness look like? A dignified life look like? What comes to your mind? Well, Paul's train of thought kind of carries him off into discussing then the gospel message. 
And he's talking about how this one God has, of course, made one way to be saved through the one mediator and the one ransom, the sacrifice of Christ that he, that he provided to save all sorts of people from everywhere. That's the message that he was sent out to preach. He goes off into that, but then he comes back now in our passage this morning. So, like I was saying, praying and living godly and dignified lives in every way like this. And he begins to address the subject. By no means giving us an exhaustive answer. But he does begin to give us an answer. Here's what godliness looks like. And it has nothing to do with how many Bible verses you can quote. Or how much complex theology and doctrine you understand and can explain. Or how much you're in church. Or how many different committees you've served on. It doesn't have anything to do with that. Godliness... And the types of lives that are dignified before others, he starts here talking to men and women both with answers that really have to be characterized as kind of bread and butter. Pretty simple. Not complicated, simple. But also not easy. Pretty hard. So hard that really it does require help from God. Internal heart change. If we're, if we're going to be this in a real way, these things that we're going to see here, it requires change on the inside that requires help from God. We can't just kind of stick it onto the outside and hope to, hope to look different. No, we want to be different so that it comes out of us and is what we are. And that's going to require help from God. Be gripped by the gospel if we're going to get there. So that's what we're going to look at today in verses 8 to 10. I'm going to read them and then draw two observations. And as I get into this passage and really the following passages in the coming weeks and probably really throughout the rest of the letter, we're going to see something obvious and inescapable. God's word sees and recognizes gender. Sees our two different sexes, male and female. God's word sees male and female, as a real distinction. It's not some social construct. It's, it's real. And it's a good distinction because God made it. This distinction, this difference, male and female, it's from creation. It's not from sin or from brokenness. It's not from evil. He made it. And he made it good. He made maleness as a particular distinct sex, and he also made femaleness. Again, equally particular and equally distinct. Neither one being better or worse. Neither one being superior or inferior. Neither one having more value or less value. Neither one with more dignity or less dignity. But at the same time, not the same. Different. And called to different responsibilities and different roles. So we're going to see that over and over again. We've got to recognize it and, and honor it. Recognizing it and honoring it as coming from the God who is good. And loves men and women both. Both. Both the same. So we're going to see that even today. Let me read the passage. This is beginning in 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. I'm going to read down through verse 10. I desire then 
that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. It's the passage for this morning. Let me make two observations. The first, relating to men. Gospel-gripped men lead out in prayer with pure lives of peace. So gospel-gripped men lead out in prayer with pure lives of peace. Verse 8, Paul picks up where he was in verses 1 to 4, saying, I desire, which is just a different way of commanding the church, I urge, he said above, I desire, this is what should be, in every place, wherever the church gathers, worship services, home groups, every place, the men should pray. Emphasis on the men. He even uses the word the so as to further emphasize, I'm talking to the men. So we're talking about something in particular that men are called to. We've got to keep that in mind while also noting that this does not say women cannot pray anywhere. It doesn't say that. It's not an explicit prohibition against women. It's an explicit positive affirmation and a call towards the men. This, we're looking at this, and if if you're a man, you should be thinking, there is something about godly manliness. Widespread public praying. Certainly like was mentioned up in verses 1 and 2, praying for other people, bringing them before the Lord, praying for those in authority, but because it's in every place, it's got to be about every sort of topic. Paul, that is, God, wants to be sure that the prayer ministry, and listen to this very carefully, that the prayer ministry and mission of the church has a masculine feel to it. A masculine dependence on God feel to it. That's not a masculine That's macho, that's a masculine that's dependent on God feel to it. It's not filled with pride, it's a humble and dependent masculinity. We're talking about prayer after all, which is lifting up a hand saying help. Help. Calling out to God, I, we, they need you, Lord, and I bring before you me and us and them petitioning you, asking you, interceding for this need that we have and only you can give. That's a dependent posture, not a, I got it under control, I'm in charge, follow me. It's a, follow me as I lead us to ask him for help. We're going to go, we're going to go together, follow me, we're going to go together into the throne room of God and ask him for his mercy and grace that we all need, me first and foremost. And again, that's not saying that women can't do that anywhere, it's saying that men must do it everywhere, in every place. So when I'm saying masculine feel, I'm not saying no femininity, no women, I'm saying masculine feel to it. This is what godliness looks like for men. 
Let's pray. Not, I got it. Let's go ask him because we need him. As men, pray. And pray like men. Sometimes we kind of feel like, and it gets communicated to us, maybe not overtly, but between the lines, that if you're going to be a man who prays, you've got to pray kind of like in a, even you read the word crying out to God and you feel like you've got to have tears. Well, tears aren't wrong, but tears aren't required. Crying out to God is just expressing need. And if you don't like tears, okay. You don't have to gin up some tears. Pray like a man, but pray. Pray like a man, but pray. Positively, lifting up holy hands, and negatively, without anger and quarreling. You you see this, as he's building this picture here in this very short statement, he's building this picture, we should realize, and we'll see it in the coming weeks, that there is an assumed structure of leadership and headship in the church and in the family, And what he's doing here is he's creating, I want, I'm talking about a leader that's like this. One you can follow. Because he's leading us into the presence of God with holy hands, that is, with a pure life. Here we are, men. His call to you is that you be one who prays with a pure life. Lifting up holy hands means from a stance of purity. So are you consciously in pursuit of holiness in your own life? Righteousness and justice in your own life. Aware my, my daily calling here, what he just said to me, is that everywhere I am, we, I'm one of the we, I'm one of the men, we are to be entering into the throne room of the Holy One. Indeed, 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 as a forgiven one. Indeed, 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 coming by mercy and grace, for sure. But he's the Holy One. And I don't want to come in there dirty. Psalm 24 asks and answers, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his presence? And it answers, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord. Godliness, men, is a life lived in pursuit of righteous, just truth, purity of heart. After all, you're going to be going into the presence of the Holy One and asking Him for the needs that you and we and they have. We want His blessing. We don't want there to be any barrier between us and Him. I want the men to pray, lifting up holy hands, in this way especially, without anger and quarreling. Commanded specifically of the men, not because women never get angry and never quarrel. Of course they do. But, 
It is, it is a more common issue for men that we deal with frustration. We deal with what's not going right. We deal with plans thwarted. We deal with getting ripped off in anger. And we also deal with fear and uncertainty and sadness, often in anger. I heard a humorous exchange in a, in a, a teaching context trying to drive this point home. Two people talking, and one guy said, I only have two emotions, hungry and angry. And the other person said, you know, actually, hungry is not an emotion. <laughs> and he said, I guess that just leaves anger then. I'm trying to make this point. It, everything kind of gets put under and bubbles out as angry. More commonly for men. I'm speaking in generalities here, of course. But this is addressed to men, not, again, not because women never get angry, but because men more commonly do. It's frequently how we respond. And the arguing is just an extension of that. It's a verbal attempt to make things go according to plan, to get what I'm angry about not getting. To persuade. When, you, when you're arguing, you're trying to persuade of your own view and argue your own case or cause to be established in the right and to be seen as right, so therefore to be esteemed as right in the position of, of knowledge and privilege and the other guy not so, like he shouldn't be. It's what you have to do to make that come about right and make yourself seem right and, and to get things arranged properly. You have to set things straight. You have to bring about the right belief and the right course of action. And you have to gain the proper result, what you should have and what you should have been given. And if it's meant to be, it's up to you to make it happen. So you argue and contend and shout down and yell and throw glances and glare and push and shove and rage to get your own way. That's kind of what it feels like sometimes, right? That, or, here's my life, Lord. Here's my need as I see it. I'm kind of, fill in the blank, sad, frustrated, confused, hurt. I think I need this. Please give it. Please give it. I think we need this, please give it, but not my will, yours be done. One or the other. But you can't do both. They are mutually exclusive. Real prayer and angering and quarreling are an either-or situation. Because, really, Anger and argumentativeness is about you and God, just like the prayer is. Follow this here. I'm trying to be too complicated with this, but I want to be clear about it. Prayer is obviously me talking to God about me and God. Anger and argumentativeness is also about you and God. It may seem like it's about you and the guy at work. It may seem like it's about you and your family, but it's really about neither of them. It's about you and God. God, what you have given me here is bad and wrong and I refuse to accept it, but instead war against it. In my heart 
and with my tongue and with my actions if need be. It's going to come out against those people around me, but it's not actually about them. It's about you. Everything I have has come from your hand and you've blown it. And I will not rest until you've changed it. That's what anger says. That's what an argumentative spirit says. And what God says is put that away and come talk to me. You can't do both. Put that away and come talk to me. Men lift up holy hands, lift up a pure heart, a pure life to God without anger, not quarrelsome, but instead dependent on him. Get rid of it is clearly the command. But that is easier said than done. But before we talk about actually doing it, you've got to want that. You've got to see it. It's, can you imagine how sweet it would be to be a man who isn't angry? Who isn't unbearable to live with? I'm not talking about abusively violent or verbally harsh or aggressive in that way or oppressive in some way, that, of course, would be, would be really, really, really wrong. And if, let me, everybody hear this, if, if you're in a situation like that, talk to somebody. Bring that out. We'd love to hear about it, to listen to you, and to help as best we can. But I'm not really meaning, I'm not trying to focus on, on something that would be violent or what we might call abuse. I just mean really the run-of-the-mill anger that looks like I'm yelling at my workmate or I'm yelling at him in my head and in the car on the way home. Or I'm yelling at my family, but I'm not really mad at them, I'm mad about something else. Or I'm yelling at the referee or I'm yelling at the television. I'm just that. Or I'm just drip, 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 just constantly disagreeable. That sucks the life out of you and the people around you. To be free of that would be the sweetest thing. To not be angry and argumentative and quarrelsome, but instead be peaceable. It would be sweet for you and for your family and for those around you and for the larger onlooking world and for the witness to Jesus as the world looks and says, there's somebody who's at rest and is God. You gotta want that. It'd be sweet to get there. So how do you get there? Well, just do it. Just stop being angry. I mean, come on. How hard is that? What part of don't be angry don't you understand? That works for me. Of course not. And I'm kind of angry that you said that. <laughs> right? It doesn't, that doesn't work. Though it is worth saying there is some wisdom in bite your tongue. There's some wisdom in that. But it's never going to get at the heart of the issue because really, as I said, the issue is about me and God and I've got to get there, not just my actions. It's always about the heart. This is where the hard thing comes in because I need God's help to change me. May the gospel more griply, deep, griply, deeply grip all of us. Especially if you find yourself angry and quarreling and arguing all the time. Face the fact, here's what you do, face the fact that this is first and foremost about you and God and faith. Faith. 
you and God in faith. And at that moment, may this flash across the screen of your mind, the man Jesus, despised and rejected for no reason that made any sense. The man Jesus reviled and cursed and provoked and falsely accused and beaten unjustly. It was wrong. He should have set him right. Right. I mean, he should have made clear this is wrong. He should have argued the case and he could have proven it because he was right. But he did not rage and respond and retaliate. But was silent like a sheep led to the slaughter. How? First Peter tells us. First Peter tells us. Not by saying the justice doesn't matter but by entrusting himself and his cause and even his life into the hands of him who judges justly. First Peter tells us that Jesus looked injustice right in the eye and said, I will set that on my father's desk and trust him. And I'm going to do that so that all my sons, that's you, will have just such a defender and judge and savior and provider, so that all my sons will have him as their savior and judge, as their defender and provider. Because you can't take on the world, you can't fix it. He can, he will. He does for you. Because Jesus set that on his desk and went to the cross, therefore then now you have him as your father also. And can with Jesus turn the other cheek in the face of injustice, face of sorrow and disappointment. And you can lift up holy hands to your father in heaven and say, help, I know you hear me. I know you are my father. I know you know my needs. And I know you have obligated yourself to meet them. So help. And I trust myself to you who judges justly. And then, part of his response to you may, give, may be to give you power and wisdom and grace so as to act in faith and love. Because not everything in the world, not everything in the world requires us to turn the other cheek. Sometimes, as men, we have to take some action about something, but not in anger. Not in anger. Let me go one piece further, maybe to make this a little more concrete. When you're angry and when you're tempted and you want to fight and you want to argue about something and you're feeling frustrated and maybe you're just in your car quietly with the wheels going a thousand miles an hour and you're... What do you do? Well, I said, may this flash across the screen. Yeah, let me be a little more concrete. Right there, I think, I have found this for myself at least, that it is helpful to sometimes kind of take myself in hand and say, what am I angry about? What exactly? Because as I said earlier, it might be actually something that I'm afraid of. It might be something that I'm just confused about and I don't know what to do and the only way I know how to respond to that is to get angry. 
I find it helpful sometimes to take pencil in hand and say, what is the thing? What am I actually angry about? Write it down. Writing it down makes you get specific. My life's not working out. Like how? Write it down. Write it down. And then, do you remember the promises of God? And do you take yourself in hand and say, let me go over and find the promises of God. Which ones relate to those things I just wrote down? Which promises relate to that? Write them down. Trust them. Trust him. I don't do this a lot, but I have done it before. Sometimes I will write down, there it is. Do I believe that? Yes or no? Do I believe him when he promises me yes, no? Circle one. I find that when I look at it that concretely, I know what the right answer is, and then I'm left saying, Lord, hands lifted up. I believe, but help my unbelief, because this is really about you and me. I believe, but I'm stuck in unbelief. I believe, but I'm doubting help. Godliness, particularly in men, is not prayerless anger. But it is God-dependent, pure peace. It's what he wants from us. And that's what the world would look at and say, huh, two. Women. Verse 9, the focus shifts over to women, addressing some challenges related to godliness and dignity for them, which again doesn't mean the men have no problem with this at all. It just means these are more typically things that women struggle with. So here it is. Gospel-gripped women decorate themselves with modest attire and good works. Gospel-gripped women decorate themselves with modest attire and good works. And I use the word decorate here, though that's maybe not a way to put it, talk about decorating yourself. But I'm saying decorate to try to capture the full weight of the word adorn. It's in verse 9. And to make very clear that we are not talking about and God is not expecting or requiring some sort of deliberately unattractive presentation. This is not the burqa verse. <laughs> and, and really, I think there are many, I mentioned burqa, there are many Muslim women who would be free if they would find this. This is not about that. parallel here is, is not exactly between, so in, in saying that, what I'm trying to say is that God's good with beauty. God's good with beauty. God is very fine with, he expects in fact, women to adorn themselves. But the parallel is not, he's not, he's not actually commanding it. The parallel is between adorning themselves in what way. That's the parallel. So it's not quite right to say he requires adorning, but I'm just belaboring this point here to, to kind of point out something that should be freeing, I believe. He's good with beauty. Go ahead, 
Decorate yourself. Adorn yourself. But a gospel-gripped woman will decorate herself in certain ways and will avoid decorating herself in other ways. Verse 9, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. And here we go. The pastor is about to tell me what I can wear as a godly woman. So I'm wondering, is this going to be a hemline that's two inches above the knee or two inches above the ankle? It's going to depend how conservative he is. But that's kind of where our thinking goes. Some of our thinking, like right away. I think, right? Here comes the dress code rules. But actually, there is nothing like that here. It's worth, it's worth just, it's obvious, but it's worth just looking. There's, if you're looking to write a rule from this, it is maddeningly inexact. Even when it tries to get exact, as I'll, I'll comment, braided hair and gold and pearls and costly, that's not even exact. What's costly attire compared to what? We've got a real problem. It, it, it's going to be kind of frustrating to read, decorate with respectable apparel, and we're going to immediately ask, what's respectable? Take a quick second and think about it in your own mind. Think about swimsuits. What's respectable apparel at the pool or at the beach? Whatever you came up with, I'm not going to talk about that, but whatever it was that you came up with, I'm pretty sure you wouldn't even dream of wearing it at a wedding or a funeral. It'd be scandalous, not respectable. The context matters hugely. If we're looking just at the apparel, just at the clothing, or just at the jewelry, if that's, if that's our focus, we're, we're going to have real trouble here, even when it seems that he gets specific. Because when he says, you know, the gold, pearls, costly attire, braided hair, he's more or less describing Roman high fashion at the time. He's looking at something, he's seeing braids were worn to flaunt hair. Hair was a big deal back then, maybe more so than it is now. And how you wore it was saying a lot. They're flaunting something there, and then obviously all the other stuff shows off wealth. And he judges that as improper for them, but it's worth asking, does any of that say any of that today? Ten-year-olds wear braided hair, and most of us have gold wedding rings. Is it absolutely wrong to wear gold? Absolutely wrong? If we're just trying to look at just the details, we're going to be really troubled. So how do we advance? Well, there's help in the key phrase that pushes us towards inner heart attitude. Decorate yourself with modesty and self-control. Modesty is not a physical detail. It's an attitude of the heart, one that's going to take self-control. We're going to hold ourselves to it and apply it to all of our decorating so let's think about the word modesty. And as we do so, I'm, I'm approaching this not trying to like pin you down and win an argument by defining a word a certain way. I'm assuming that I'm talking to the church. And so we're talking about this together. People who want to, who read the verse, see the word, and want to follow God on the path he's called us to, and therefore asking you can't just say that item of clothing is good and that item of clothing is bad. So what does modesty actually mean? 
What is it? Let's talk about that. So I'm assuming we're talking about this together. I'm not pinning you down with a definition here. But here's the definition. Modesty is the desire to follow dominant customs and usage regarding what is proper while desiring to avoid hurtful provocation, agitation, stimulation, or the like. I'll say that again. Modesty is the desire to follow dominant customs and usage regarding what's proper while desiring to avoid hurtful provocation, agitation, stimulation, or the like. Sort of a stiff definition. Here's a quicker one. The attitude of modesty is wanting people to look at you and say, that's nice, instead of, whoa, oh my goodness, did you see, how dare they, or yikes. Wanting people to look at you and say, that's nice, instead of, whoa. When you think about modesty like that, using either one of those definitions, it becomes clear that modesty is about a heart issue first, not a skin issue. You see in the questions that I wrote on the back of the note sheet where there's some application questions, one of them is to ask us all to think about what else might modesty apply to? Because it's about a lot more than clothing. It's about speech and actions. So it's, it's about the heart. It's going to come out in a lot of ways. We're talking about apparel now, but it's, it's wide. It's got to get applied and lived out. Some things and some clothes and some words and some haircuts and some body art would be modest and some would be immodest. And I'm not going to say a word about any of that. If you want to think more about it, read more about it, I'd recommend a book, Modest, Men and Women Clothed in the Gospel. Modest, Men and Women Clothed in the Gospel. Great little book. Highly recommend it. We're going to try to keep our focus here on the heart attitude of modesty. I want to figure out and then decorate myself in ways that follow common proper customs because it would be improper for me to decorate myself in a way that provokes, stimulates, or shocks, makes me the center of attention. That would be wrong to do. Why? And here we're at the root of it. If God's for beauty, why is God against immodesty? Why not just show it all off? If you got it, flaunt it. Why? Because intentional immodesty is self-serving pride. Just like the anger is. It's me loving me and seeking to make me the center of attention the praise and adoration of me to draw all y'all's eyes onto me and that's not proper and fitting for a person gripped by God's mercy and grace saved to live loving others 
with good works for their sake and for his sake. Think carefully about this. I realize when I say self-serving pride, and I, those couple of sentences that follow, there's, that's, that's a, a hard statement. And maybe it needs to come at, at your heart and confront something in you, but I want you to think about it a little bit differently because pride is not always like this, hard, got to be confronted. Pride is also sometimes a slave master. So think about this, not just in the pride confronting, but in the pride that's kind of like the soft spot on the floor of your heart. You know, like when you're walking through and you're having something and it goes, like, ooh, there's a soft spot there that needs to be reinforced. There's something weak there. This might be a soft spot in your heart. And think about it like this. Do you notice yourself sometimes feeling better about yourself, feeling more confident, more acceptable, more powerful, lighter and higher and more hopeful when the braces come off, the blemishes clear up, the dress fits really nicely, you slay I'm feeling good about myself. And then, when the blemishes are there and looking big this morning in the mirror, and I've got another year of braces, and I can't get my weight under control, and the dress bulges, there's a soft spot. Because I don't feel as confident and as powerful and as acceptable and as good and as beautiful and as lovable. I feel kind of bad and embarrassed about me. There's the slave master. Godly women do adorn themselves and it's good and right to dress thoughtfully and pleasantly with respectable apparel with clothing that others would look at and say, nice, that's good. There's a person of dignity who's under self-control. And to clothe yourself like that is just fine. But to be free from this slave master would be sweet. To be able to just leave it at that and say, there, I, I look fine. I'm not, a, I'm not provoking people. I'm not, it's just not about me. To be free from it being about you would be sweet. To be free to, to step out with the blemishes and with whatever kind of outfit and whatever kind of body you have, to be able to step out free and say, I am just as acceptable and just as loved and just as powerful and just as confident and just as useful because it has nothing to do with this. It has everything to do with him and this is, I, I have a savior who was himself rejected and despised, set aside so that I could know that I forever stand accepted, forever stand loved, forever stand empowered, forever stand free. There'd be such good for you to win the battle of beauty in the heart first. And to, to stand before, to be gripped by the truth. That this, here's a God who said, you're mine. I can't love you anymore. I will never, ever love you any less. You're mine. 
that would leave you free to adorn yourself as ever you like, but then free to say what I'm really most concerned to be dressed up in is a beauty that says I live to love you and live to love you and I pour out of my life good works. There would be something sweet and beautiful in that. Psalm 84 tells me and tells you that the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The Lord bestows favor and honor. The Lord bestows favor and honor. The Lord looks on you and says, favored and honored one. That is good news. You are a favored and honored one, approved, freed to decorate yourself with apparel that's, that's good and right, with a heart that says, I'm about loving you, and then seeks out the good works that would carry that out, that would say, I live to help and to love you and to bless you in the name of the Father who has loved and blessed me, has secured me and made me whole. That's the gospel, that's not law, that's never going to come from a dress code. And that's good news. A godly woman thinks and says, not look at me, but a godly woman instead says, I'm going to look at you, Father, and then look at them and love them. So may God make us like that. Let me pray. Before I pray, let me just acknowledge, I realize I'm a man talking about some things that are important to women. If somehow or another I offended you this morning, I'm sorry. I did not mean to. Come talk to me if, if I got to make something right with you and straight with you. But I think there's something good and freeing here that I would encourage you to listen to and process. And if you need to process it more, please come talk to me. Now let's pray. Lord, would you make us people like this, men and women both? It's not that these issues don't land in the opposite gender ever, but they land primarily on these two genders, I think, and we need help. We are not enough in ourselves, but we have enough in you. And so please draw near and shape us to be godly men and godly women who walk this path that you've called us to fully confident that we're forgiven in all of our failings of it. We want to know you and follow you, so help, please. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.